This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, we check in with National Indivisible's Director of Democracy Policy, Megan Hatcher-Mays, about the upcoming week of action that people lead, about the Democrats' huge win in Georgia, and we also talk about the insurrection in our nation's capital, words I never thought that I would say, and its fallout and potential consequences. That is next. This is the first podcast of the year, and we had planned on leading with Indivisible's first big event of the year, which is the People Lead events that are going to be happening all over the country on the week of January 11th next week with our friend Megan Hatcher-Mays, who is Director of Democracy Policy for Indivisible. And we were also, of course, planning on talking about the results of the Georgia runoff. And we will uh, talk about both of those things. But as we know, on Wednesday, um, something unprecedented happened in our country. Uh, We had... We had an insurrection in our nation's capital. Thousands of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol, potentially threatening the vice president, senators, and members of Congress. And so by necessity, we will begin by talking about that. Uh, first, Megan, as we know, we, you you live in D.C. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, fortunately, I don't live too, too close to the Capitol, so I was sort of geographically far away from where this was taking place. But Um, You know, it's still happening in your backyard. It's still really scary as a D.C. resident for this to be so close. We found out later that some of the uh, participants in the march and the eventual riot were staying in some of the more residential neighborhoods of D.C. So that was really disturbing um, that they could be in my neighborhood, actually. Um, But it was really hard to watch as... Uh, you know, just a person who lives in this country, you know, this, nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime um, in this country. And it really, um, what at the same time was very shocking and also not particularly surprising. I mean, this seems like sort of the inevitable conclusion to the Trump presidency that it would end in um, white supremacist violence is not particularly surprising, but it's still deeply upsetting, really shocking that it happened at all. And to find out, you know, later that a lot of the police officers were um, apparently letting protesters into the building, uh, taking down fencing. And we found out that a lot of Trump loyalists, excuse me, in the Pentagon were rejecting offers of help from our neighboring states. So the governor of Maryland had offered to send in the National Guard, and so did the governor of Virginia, and they said no. So it allowed this to escalate, and it was really, really scary, and it, I think, really illustrated the need um, to hold these people accountable, not just the rioters, but Trump himself, that we can't just move on. We can't just say, oh, well, that's done. You know, Biden's president now. We just need to move on. That There really needs to be an accounting of what took place over the last four years. And there needs to be some real accountability for the people who allowed this, not only allowed it to happen, but really incited it um, to happen in the first place. I, I agree so much. And I feel, and I've been thinking about this very question myself in terms of what it's going to look like to have accountability here in a way that punishes the people who are responsible for this, including the president himself, but also is done in a way that deters something like this from ever happening again. Uh, I, I, I looked to Merrick Garland and I, I mean, I would... I would very much love to know what's going on in his mind, and we will see uh, soon in in short order. I'll just ask you before we move on from this, what is the mood in D.C. like right now? 
Yeah, it's it's a strange combination of uh, a little bit of fear still, um, but I think actually a lot of wind at our backs, right? That a lot of, you know, we have a trifecta. It was easy to forget that kind of in the midst of all of this violence, but we won back control of the Senate. The margin is really slim. It's still 50-50 with Vice President uh, Harris being the tiebreaker in that scenario, but we have a real chance here to do something about this. And I think that's what people feel. It feels like there's a lot of momentum to um, start the process of it. Like without accountability, you can't really have that healing moment. And I think if I can just go back in time, like 40 or 50 years or so, you know, I think that the proof is in how we dealt with Richard Nixon's corruption, right? So after Richard Nixon resigned, he was ultimately pardoned by Gerald Ford. And and I think Ford at the time thought, well, that's how we heal. We just right. move on. We pardon him and we move on. It would be too devastating to the country's psyche to see the president in handcuffs. Um, and I don't think that that's true anymore. I, I think that, that you can draw a straight line from pardoning Richard Nixon to where we are today, where people in power think that there is no um, consequence for using their power to corrupt and to benefit the self-dealing and benefit themselves. They think there's nothing that can be done about it. And it's just not true. So I think there's a couple things that can happen. One is we've called for the impeachment and immediate removal of Donald Trump. And I know some people might be thinking, oh yeah, but he's leaving in 12 days or however many days. Um, why don't we just wait him out? And the reason is, is that it means something to impeach a president and it means something to impeach him twice. It's really, really important to say, if you do this, because Trump is one man, but his philosophy is widespread. So he's not going to be the last Donald Trump we ever see. I think we'll probably see a few of them in 2024, actually. Um, so you need to send the message right now to any wannabe Trumps waiting in the wings that there are consequences for acting like this. There are consequences for inciting white supremacist violence. There are consequences for um, calling up the secretary of a state and asking them to overturn a legitimate election and to find fake votes to, so that you can win. There's consequences to that. Um, and then the really important aspect of it <clears throat> that I think is, is more important than like the symbolic impeachment vote is that if he is convicted in the Senate, the Senate can then further punish him beyond removal. They can further punish him by barring him from ever holding federal office ever again. Right. And that is so, so important that I am desperate for that to happen, um, for Republicans to really stand on the right side of it. They had their chance last year to convict him and they did not do it. Um, they have a chance to do that again. Um, we have been hearing that Democrats are going to move articles of impeachment within the next few days, which is great. They should move as quickly as possible, uh, take it directly to the floor. We don't need hearings. Just take it directly to the floor and the Senate should convict him immediately. Republicans have a chance to say that they stand on the side of our democracy and our country and not on the side of Trump. And he must, must, must be um, disqualified from holding office again. That's why impeachment is so important. So that's the that's the immediate thing that we can do. I, I will just ask you, and this is purely speculative. George Conway uh, tweeted this morning that he believes that there are two thirds of the Senate. Um, he didn't name names, of course. It, I, I think to the average observer, it, it seems kind of implausible that that would be the case, considering uh, the way that the challenge went down uh, after the insurrection in the Senate, uh, that there were still a number of people who were still continuing to challenge that. Do you have any sense that there might be the, the two thirds necessary to convict? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I don't want to speculate, but I think there are more Republicans who might vote than you would think. Last time we got one. We got Mitt Romney, who voted for one of the charges uh, to convict Donald Trump on one of the two charges that he was impeached over. Um, and today we heard from Ben Sass of Nebraska, who um, uh, it was a little bit of weak sauce, but he did say that um, he is he will consider the impeachment articles when they come to the Senate. And that's more than we got last time. Yeah. I think what I think this ultimately boils down to politics. Unfortunately, I think there are two camps in the Republican Party. There's one camp who is all in for Trumpism. So that would be like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who right. really shamefully um, incited some of the violence that we saw this uh, on Wednesday. And um, then there's a separate group um, who are forging a different path. And that's uh, Ben Sass is one of those. So I think it comes down to which is the most politically expedient thing to do, to denounce Trumpism or to go all in. And I think that there are probably more Republicans than you would expect in the denounce category, but we won't know until we get those articles over to the Senate and really put um, lay that question right at their feet. Like, will you denounce this finally? And finally? Ju- just to be very clear, Indivisible is calling on members to do specifically what right now? Right now, we want members of Congress uh, in the House, we want them to support these impeachment articles. My understanding is that the judiciary has drafted um, articles and that they're going to bring those articles directly to the floor, that we are not going to waste any time with hearings like we did last time. They're just going to go straight to a vote. That's all allowed under the Constitution. There's nothing procedurally wrong with doing it that way. So we want every... um, House representative to support those, including Republicans, especially Republicans, honestly. They really have a duty to stand up now and say that this was unacceptable. Um, So that's what we're asking for in the House. On the Senate side, we want them to take up the articles immediately as soon as they are transmitted over to the Senate, take those up immediately, start the trial immediately, and vote to convict him immediately so that he can, that he will be removed as soon as possible. And then we really want that disqualification vote. It's Procedurally, a little complicated, but they're two separate votes, one to convict and one to disqualify. We want him convicted and disqualified forever. That's what we're asking. You are a very astute observer of of, of the political scene in D.C., obviously. And, and so I will just ask you a question that has been rolling around in my head. Based on what we saw yesterday and how, as you say, who could have seen that coming except for everybody who has been paying attention over the last four to five years? Mm-hmm. What do you think happens to the GOP moving forward after this? Do we see a schism between the Trumpists and the establishment GOP? How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I can imagine that. I can see that happening. I think, um, you know, ultimately, I think where the concern lies is um, not giving them too much credit for doing the least at the last minute, right? So there could be this situation where you have like your Mitt Romney's and your Ben Sass's kind of forging this different I, I don't know if they would like create a third party, but you could s- sort of see them, imagine them forging this sort of more center-right um, caucus of people who are, who find Trump. Establishment, repugnant. if you will. Yeah. yeah, more establishment Republicans, I think is exactly right, where they find Trump morally repugnant, but, you know, at the end of the day, still support his policy. I mean, these are all guys who all voted for the tax cuts and they voted for his judges and all that stuff. So they still agree with his basic policy proposals, but they find him morally um, repugnant or they find him, you know, personally offensive. So you could imagine that happening. And then you might see, like a, like I was saying before, your Josh Hawley types who have kind of been play acting at 
popular right wing populism, really embracing the Trump stuff. Really, um, you know, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that we're going to see ahead of 2024 a lot of Republicans kind of going to New York or for Florida, wherever Trump ends up, and asking him, you know, for his endorsements and things like that. I don't think Trump will go so quietly into the night, and I think a lot of Republicans will um, really lobby for his support. But I think that after the events of this week, there are a lot of Republicans who were broken out of a reverie. Again, not wanting to give them too much credit, but really saw the uh, manifestation of Trump's rhetoric. It's not a joke. Uh, we have all been saying this this entire time, and he's not joking. It's not harmless. He really has whipped up a lot of um, violent um uh, people with a lot of with a desire to commit violence on his behalf. That's what happened this week. I remember very distinctly hearing people uh, at the beginning of his campaign saying, um, "I think it was something along the lines of uh, take him seriously, but not literally.'" And mm -hmm. uh, I think we now see the folly in that. Exactly. In fact, I think at every juncture, the prognostication and the uh, the uh, all of these grand pronouncements, even Dana Bash on CNN was saying, uh, we've seen a new tone from the president. Um, I just no. candidly, uh, I threw up in my mouth a little bit last night. Actually, it was, and it was out of rage. Uh, it really yeah. was. Let's turn to a brighter subject. And I think this is a subject that is uh, going to... Uh, uh, have the GOP in a place of reckoning as well. And it's also a real a real bright spot for us uh, in particular, and that is what happened in Georgia. We won the Senate. Uh, Democrats John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock both won their runoff elections in Georgia. I feel we got uh, approximately three hours of joy uh, before, you know, uh, to, to celebrate that. But I really don't want to lose track of the importance of this moment, right? Democrats now control the Senate, the House, and the White House. And so before we talk about the prescriptives and what comes next with Indivisible, I want to know how you're observing this moment, Megan. And, and how are you thinking personally about all of this work that we did over the last four years to make this happen? It feels really good. You know, it feels really gratifying. I remember in 2016, after realizing Hillary Clinton was not going to win and just being, I've never felt that sad. And this feels like the exact opposite, or at least it did for that three hours. You got to find the joy where you can, I think. <laughs> and it felt like, um, you know, it just felt really gratifying to have dedicated, you know, the last four years to really for this moment and we're here now and it feels really good. And I just feel so proud to be part of the indivisible movement, especially because of everything that the, our local groups, Washington state, of course, here, here. Uh, my favorite yeah. state where I am from um, has done so much to um, flip districts that people thought were solidly red. Like for example, uh, in Washington state, everyone thought Rikert's district was lost to Republicans forever. And that ended up not being true. And the reason it ended up not being true is because people knocked on doors and people registered folks to vote. And, um, you know, when I was growing up in Washington, solid blue state, I think we always just kind of thought like, well, my vote doesn't really matter that much because Washington always goes blue. But I think what's been kind of the silver lining of the Trump presidency is realizing how many layers there are to how our government works. So it's not just about the presidency. It's also about like, well, actually, there are some congressional districts here that we where we might have some opportunities or there might be opportunities to pull our Democratic senators 
further to the left if we um, pressure them right. And so I think that's been such a beautiful uh, thing to watch over the last four years. And I'm really, really excited to see that manifest. So we've been playing defense right for the last four years. Really excited to see that manifest as offense over the next uh, four. So it's, it felt good. I really want so put a pin in that because actually the very last question that I have for you is how we keep up engagement um, nationally and here in uh, in Washington. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about what Indivisible is asking for. And I will uh, just front end this by saying that Indivisible has just released their Indivisible 2.0 guide. We will be having uh, a separate town hall about that. It's very very exciting. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but now that Democrats control the Senate the White House, the House. Indivisible is calling for and has been calling for a week of action from the 11th to the 15th called the People Lead. And we didn't really know what this was going to look like. We didn't know if this was going to be us having to work around the Senate or us being able to take the Senate. Um, You were encouraging uh, Indivisibles to engage with their members of Congress on a specific agenda. And I want to talk about that. But first, give us an idea of what the events look like. And also, given that this is a pandemic, how are you encouraging people to stay safe right now? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, under normal circumstances, we would have loved for everybody to come to D.C. We could have all been in matching shirts saying like democracy rules, but that is not possible um, because, you know, our previous president did not get this pandemic under control. So um, most of the events are going to be virtual. You can go onto our website, indivisible.org, and register your event on our map. Um, A lot of folks are reaching out to their uh, representatives to have to have meetings with their uh, congressional representatives, but also reaching out to their senators as well. And the big theme is democracy reform. I'm super excited about it. Um, I think, um, you know, the events of, of the last week have shown more than ever how critically important it is to have a more representative democracy, one where everybody has a say and one that everybody can trust in that yeah. the results of the elections are legitimate and that everyone had a chance to participate in them. And simply, it really shouldn't be the case that one party gets millions upon millions more votes than the other. And the best we can do is a 50-50 split in the Senate. So um, HR1, uh, the For the People Act, that's one of the bills we're really hoping folks will talk to their members of Congress about. Um, it got introduced in the House on the very first day of the 117th Congress, and it passed Uh, the last Congress pretty easily. We feel good about its passage this time, but just want to make sure we get every single Democrat voting yes on that bill. Probably won't get any Republicans because they do not like structural democracy reforms quite as much as Democrats. As as we've learned, as we've recently (laughs) learned. Yeah. So HR1, that's going to be a big one that we would love for folks to talk to their members of Congress about and their senators as well. HR4 is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I don't need to tell your listeners how critically important it is to restore the Voting Rights Act so that everybody can participate in our democracy. And one of my favorites, HR 51, the DC statehood bill that would make DC the 51st state. Again, um, not to link everything back to this you know, riotous mob. But one of the reasons um, that statehood is so critical is because of instances like this, right? So they could have called in the National Guard if they had been a state. Exactly. Yes. So we have a mayor uh, who can request that our own National Guard be called up, but we need permission 
from the Pentagon to actually call up the National Guard. No governor has to do that. No governor has to ask anybody for permission. They can just call up the National Guard. The, it seems to me that the only person on Wednesday who actually wanted to tamp down this violence was um, the mayor of the disenfranchised federal district. She wanted to call in um, the National Guard and she wanted to provide uh, law enforcement support for this. these you know, riots and she was rejected. And so if we were talking about DC mayor, Muriel Bowser, I am talking about DC mayor, Muriel Muriel Bowser. She had, she tried and she was, and uh, for hours, uh, nobody would approve her request. So not to go too deep in the weeds, but that's just one of many, many reasons why DC should be a state. The other is because it makes the Senate more representative. You know, I was just saying, you know, Democrats typically get millions and millions, tens of millions of more votes in Senate races than Republicans do. But right now we're at a 50-50 split that just isn't right. And one of the reasons is because D.C., which has 700,000 residents, which is more than Wyoming, I believe, has zero uh, senators. So we could change a lot about how our government works by making D.C. the 51st state. And, and it would start go a long way towards making the Senate more representative and more Fair. And so. you you actually have a graphic uh, on Twitter that you posted that showed the relative uh, size of, say, Wyoming and California and D.C. Where's the disconnect there? So I actually and I would also just say I would encourage people to follow you on, on Twitter. You're 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 wonderful. You're very, very insightful. It's important, <laughs> Megan. Uh, and on, on Twitter. The last thing that I want to ask you about that I know is on the list is reforming the courts. This could take a number of, of different forms. Up into and including Supreme Court expansion, which is something that mm-hmm. we have talked about a lot. And I know that a lot of us on the progressive left absolutely want. But now we've got, the I think, arguably the two two of the most important people suddenly in D.C. are Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Yeah. They are not for this. I don't believe that Joe Manchin is actually even for, or, or Kirsten Sinema, rather, I don't believe is for D.C. statehood. And I'll just ask you a very uh, sort of broad question here. How do you envision getting them on board with these things? And is there a way to make it politically palatable or advantageous to them for doing so? Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, it's a good question because um, you're right. Uh, Cinema and Manchin are not co-sponsors of the D.C. statehood bill right now, and they tend to balk at some of more the more progressive proposals for how to reform the courts. What we want to see on the courts specifically are uh, four things. One is we want to expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court. Uh, The second is we want to do an expansion of the seats on the lower appellate court. So not every case goes to the Supreme Court. Most cases are decided at the appellate court level. Um, Donald Trump has selected a third of the judges. He was able to confirm a third of the judges that make up our federal judiciary. That is alarming, given that um, many of the judges he picked were rated unqualified. So um, this is there's precedent for this. Uh, Jimmy Carter expanded the lower courts um, back in the uh, 1970s, and it, they haven't really been expanded since. So there's a n- real need to do this. We also want to see uh, Supreme Court ethics reform because the Supreme Court justices do, are not required to follow the same ethics rules as every other federal judge. And we would like to see term limits so that um, you know, kind of defangs, depoliticizes, I should say the uh, confirmation process because every president should get about two picks per term. So that's what we're asking for. A lot of these are super reasonable. I think, um, I just think that um, the courts in particular are going to be a big challenge for us because 
traditionally folks on the left just haven't paid as close attention to the courts as folks on the right have. I mean, on the right, they really, after Roe v. Wade, they really mobilized uh, in a way that we, that our side just has never done. So we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. It's going to take a lot of work, not just with Manchin and Cinema, but with a lot of Senate Democrats to get them to understand um, just how widespread the damage is to the judiciary that was kind of wrought by Donald Trump. So to answer your question, it's going to be a ton of work. It's going to require a lot of education. It's going to require a lot of um, grassroots support. So anybody listening who wants to be involved, I could really use your help. Um, but I think, you know, in dealing with Manchin and Cinema on other legislative issues, because, you know, he's also, Manchin has also said he's not crazy about getting rid of the filibuster. I mean, I think what it comes down to is, do is do you want Mitch McConnell to continue to rule the Senate? Because that's what's going to happen if you keep the filibuster in place. I cannot imagine that Joe Manchin wants to be responsible for that, to be responsible for allowing Mitch McConnell to have a veto over Joe Biden's agenda. So um, I think that Joe Manchin genuinely believes that a uh, he, that we're about to usher in a new era of bipartisanship. I think it'll become clear really quickly that we are not on the verge of ushering in a new era of bipartisanship and we will be there to help him uh, see the light, hopefully, um, once he once he sees just how obstructionist Republicans are going to be. I have a, a, a question about that, a very salient question about that. But first, you mentioned that you could use some help. And we have somebody named Janice Pierce-Cox, perhaps a relation. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Uh, who is asking uh, how now, of course, we were involved here in our indivisible groups uh, here here in, in Washington. Are, are there ways that uh, we can get involved to help you directly with some of the things that you've been talking about? Yeah, definitely. So um, actually, um, uh, Maria Cantwell and um, Patty Murray, I don't know where they're at. On court reform. That's what I mean when I say it's not just these sort of like more moderate Democrats. There's a lot of Democrats that are open question. And actually, Maria Cantwell in the past has been very hesitant to weigh in on some of Trump's worst judicial nominees. Like she took her time really coming out in opposition to Brett Kavanaugh, of all people. And she took a very long time before coming out in opposition to Amy Coney Barrett last fall. There's no need to, um, you know, waste time on just trying to figure out whether or not you should support one of Donald Trump's judicial nominees. So I think that um, they could use uh, some, uh, they, somebody might want to pose the question to them about how they feel about the court reforms. And if, and if, if they don't support Supreme court expansion, then what is, what is the alternative? How are we going to get some of these more progressive pieces of legislation, not only through Congress, but how are they going to be upheld in the courts if we don't do something about the courts themselves? So um, Washington does have a role to play. Obviously, Patty Murray has um, a leadership role in the Senate among Democrats. She um, works really closely with Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer. Here, here. On a lot. Yes, get used to saying, get to hearing that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, she works with him very closely on lots of issues. And so Patty Murray in particular, um, it will be uh, very critical in moving forward the progressive agenda, not just on the courts, but across the board, moving the progressive agenda forward um, in this new era of our Democratic majority. So Washington state has a huge role to play just because you're a blue state doesn't mean you you don't have anything to do. Well, let's ask about two other incredibly important players uh, right now, which are, are of course, uh, Congress, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who is the sole mm-hmm. chair now of the Progressive Caucus, and then Susan ah. Bene, who is chair of the more moderate New Democrats. How do you see Indivisible interfacing and working with both of them? 
Yeah, so I'm really, oh, I'm so excited about uh, Representative Jayapal. She is great. She's been such a champion of our progressive issues and such a good friend to Indivisible uh, since she came to Congress. And so we are over the moon that she is going to be the chairwoman of CPC. So one thing we're really excited about is our progressive voting block. And there's tons of information about this on our website if people want to read more into it. It's sort of based I'm sorry to say this, it's sort of based on the Freedom Caucus, which was like the right wing thing that came out of the Tea Party, except that they were very destructive. They didn't well, want to govern. <laughs> I mean, I think Ezra and Leah were very clear about the fact that while a lot of this is based on the Tea Party, uh, none of the violence, none of the racism. So we, we, right. we draw bright lines around those sorts of things. Yes. right? Yeah. And they were a very destructive force. I mean, their whole goal was to thwart um, legislative business. That is not the progressive voting bloc's goal. And so we're really excited to see how Jayapal kind of weeds the, wields this new power um, to make sure that the legislation that we're passing in the House is as progressive as we can get it. And um, she's just been fantastic, uh, uh, her leadership on progressive issues in particular, and the CPC in as well has just been fantastic. So we're super excited to work with her. Um, Del Benny, a little bit more of a moderate. It'll be interesting to see the interaction between the new Democrats, which are a lot more um, um, uh, moderate uh, than the CPC members and the, and the CPC. So the bummer about November is that um, we lost some House seats. And so both of those factions, the progressives and the moderates, both have kind of a similar power uh, dynamic where they can try to pull things more to the center or pull things more to the left. I think um, Indivisibles in Washington can help us by just making sure Del Benny knows that there's not going to be any consequence for going a little bit further to the left, that we all have her back and that um, spending money, it, it can be good. We don't have to do austerity. <laughs> and we won't. Building right. Safety net can be good. Yeah. So, no. so I think that, I think a lot of this stems from a fear, like sort of a fear of, um, of negative political ads, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but I think that what we can do as Indivisibles is just stay in good contact with our members of Congress and make sure that they know that we have their backs and that we support these, like, go big or go home. I mean, this we have a very short window of time before the 2022 midterms pick up. And so we really need to move fast and move smart. That circles me right back to what you were talking about earlier with the Biden administration. I think a lot of people have that sense that we have to move very quickly. We have no time to waste on attempts at bipartisanship or appeasement. How do you feel that we as constituents, as activists, as indivisible members encourage Biden to move quickly and decisively and, and with, with the recognition, mm -hmm. everything that you're saying that our time right now is very, very limited? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm excited for you to delve more deeply into our guide because it goes into this at length. So that will be really exciting. Um, but I think that what we are cautious, what we are cautioning the Biden administration about is to not fall for the same dirty tricks that Republicans pulled back in 2009, which is the last time that we had a Democratic trifecta. There's nothing inherently wrong with compromise, but what Republicans offer almost always is a bad faith compromise. And we don't want to fall for that. This false bipartisanship is just not going to work. And there's no reason why we need to fall for it because we have the majorities in both chambers. So we should be able to do what Democrats want to do. We should not be um, kind of pivoting to the center, especially if we don't have to. So I think the best way to get that message to Biden, what we have been saying is that um, 
you know, Joe Biden represents 350 million people. Your member of Congress only represents about 600,000 or so. So I think, so the best way, the most efficient way to use your time is to go to your member of Congress and say, this is what we want to see. We want you to see you go big and go left and move quick and move smart. Um, and you need to tell Joe Biden that too, so that he knows that, um, that in 2022, that's what we're going to be looking for when we go to vote in the midterm. So that, and that will be, um, I think, pretty compelling to Joe Biden because nobody wants to lose their majority. And so during this week of action, the people lead uh, week of action, this is precisely the kind of message that we want to be sending to Joe Biden through our members of Congress, right? Exactly. exactly. That we want to see these uh, democracy reforms move as quickly as possible, that um, we want to make D.C. the 51st state. He should do everything in his power to make that happen and that we will support him in those efforts. He has nothing to fear in 2022. (laughs) So I said that we were going to end on this question, and this is one that to me is very much a rubber meets the road kind of question, uh, because I think a lot about in terms of the work that I do uh, on behalf of Indivisible with this podcast, I think a lot about engagement. And I I get concerned that we are going to see some form of attrition uh, because it seems like it's easier to organize against a common enemy than it often is to get people behind a positive vision. So what are your thoughts on how we keep people engaged and keep them motivated for this new agenda? Yeah, it's a good question. I, and I, I hear you. Um, but I think that if the last four years have taught us anything, it's that, um, uh, there's always defense to do, right? So um, Joe Biden is pretty moderate. Um, there's going to be a lot of work to do to get him in the right spot, right? And there's going to be a lot of work to do to get our members of Congress in the right spot because I think I think we saw this uh, argument flare up after November when some House seats were lost over why did that happen? Oh, it's because, you know, um, the progressives are talking about defund the police or the progressives are talking about this or that or whatever. And what we cannot let happen is the idea, is this idea that big ideas are somehow the reason why Democrats lose seats. It's just simply not true. So um, I think the way to stay engaged is, is to acknowledge that there's still a ton of work to do. I mean, really, we've just now gotten to the starting line. I mean, like getting rid of Donald Trump was like sort of the prelims. Yeah. This is like the actual race. So we really need... It's still all hands on deck. I know it's tiring and we're all really burnt out and it's hard, but, <laughs> but this is like the Olympics. Like that was like the, the world championship. This is the Olympics, right? So um, th- there's still a ton of work to do and we really need everybody's help. And a lot of it's going to be really rewarding because there are opportunities for wins. It's not just um, defending uh, ourselves from the absolute worst. It's actually the opportunity to actually win something. And as somebody who used to work on the Hill, I got a bill passed once. And it was the best I've ever felt in my life. It felt wow. so, so good. So um, you don't want to turn, you don't want to miss that opportunity to get that serotonin boost when you, when something <laughs> that you've worked on becomes law. So I hope everyone stays in this fight. There's still a ton, ton, ton to do, and uh, we can, really can't do it with without the grassroots. So. That's it, you guys. It's serotonin. We're in it for the serotonin. <laughs> Stick around for the serotonin. No, seriously, I, I, I love those words. I really uh, thank you for that. And, you know, as always, thank you for taking the time today. And uh, your state says hello. We miss you. Uh, we're really <laughs> glad that you're doing well and, and, and that everybody on your end is safe. And uh, I just thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to have a few words with us and, and join us today, Megan. Anytime. I love being on. Thanks so much for having me. 
And that is it for today. I will have links for everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.